Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks. I am your host, Brett King. This week, we return to the world of embedded payments and uh, everything that's going on there. Um, of course, um, the big the big news at the moment is uh, Apple releasing their um, high yield savings uh, product. Um, I, you know, it's it's. I'm surprised it's taken this long for Apple to do that, given the success that other platforms have had. Uh, you know, offshore in particular. Um, the U.S. trails some of the innovations on the mobile wallet space. Obviously, if you look at Alipay, their Yui Bao savings uh, um, feature that they added to Alipay back in 2018 had a monster, actually it might have been earlier, it might have been 2016, had a monster response at $1.300 billion of assets under management. So it'll be really interesting to see how the new high yield savings account for Apple um, is tracking. Still early days, but um, also clear that Apple is going to increasingly, from a behavioral and embedded payments perspective, infringe increasingly on banking as you know, really finance just becomes embedded in your way of life, access to credit, the you know behavioral savings, all of those sort of things. So this is really topical today to get into to this. We have two guests um, joining us from Worldpay for platforms, FIS, is Matt Downs, the group president uh, at, at Worldpay. Um, Matt's uh, been in the SaaS space for and and fintech for 25 years, um, focus with a good focus on security. He, he's uh, done work with uh, First Data, Century Payments, Vantive, later branded as WorldPay, obviously acquired by FAS. Matt, welcome to Breaking Banks. Hey, thanks for having me today, Brett. Excited to be here. No problem. Also joining us from Qualys Partners is Becky Copeland. Um, she's a payment strategist and product leader. She's uh, independent. She began her uh, career 20 years ago at Wholesale Wholesale ISO or ISO. She ran ministry brands and she really consults on that nexus of um, software, SaaS and payments uh, uh, technology. So Becky Copeland, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let me let me start off with um, you know so from an ecosystem perspective um, you know and and Matt maybe you jump in first and then Becky I'll get your your view but from an ecosystem perspective things are changing fairly significantly right now we went we've gone from these proprietary you know core industry rails to now where we're expected you know to be able to handle all of these different ecosystems all of these different um, players some cloud based some you know uh, sort of infrastructure rails um, then we've got crypto and smart contracts and all of this other stuff. Now we're talking about wallets in the metaverse and, um, you know, uh, smart glasses, how they'll be integrated into this. So it's a very different world. So how, how, how would you describe, Matt, the way the ecosystem is evolving for, for payments these days in terms of like the need for connectivity? 
Yeah, I think um, it's rapidly changing just if you look at over the last five to seven years where payment gateways were kind of that payment gateways and other um, architecture were allowing for kind of switching on the front end. But I think we're going to see bread as kind of an evolution of two stories, one, either very open platforms. And I think we're seeing this through the evolution of orchestration platforms that do provide value to certain segments of the market. In other cases, you're going to see platforms that are more vertically or horizontally integrated where more of that delivery um, is, is consumed through um, maybe a single partner or maybe several partners. And I think there's pros and cons to kind of both models, but and I think we'll see them both play out um, much like we've seen in kind of the technology industry over the last decade or so. And um, what are your thoughts, Becky, in terms of that ecosystem play? Yeah, you know, I think folks are looking for connectivity and I think they're looking for optionality. But what I see is all of that converging around software platforms, especially when you're thinking about the way SMBs and mid-sized businesses are consuming financial services. They really kind of no longer want to go and a la carte this, right? I want to go to my local bank for a loan. I want to go, you know, to maybe a more national bank for my bank account. I want to go to, you know, local, you know, next door, you know, sales ISO for my merchant services, right? They're really no longer thinking about these things as independent. What they want to do and what they're seeing more than anything is a software-led payments and software-led embedded finance where, where the SMB wants to consume that within context of their business, within that kind of vertically focused SaaS platform that they're using to run their day-to-day. So uh, this requires sort of a different thinking. You know, we're talking about payments workflow in terms of engineering this connectivity, but a lot of this is now moving to the cloud because of the fact that we're trying to integrate disparate uh, platforms and the cloud is the place where we can sort of bring this together. So um, how important is it for um, you know, both payments companies and, um, you know, SMBs that are utilizing payments to be cloud integrated these days. Did you want to start off with that, Becky? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, kind of as I imagine talking to a software platform or even a provider, anytime you're going to say something like on-prem or single tenant, I think you've already kind of lost the game. I, I yep. think that they're complicated, they're heavy, they're slow, Right, the, the innovation there is near impossible, and the customization that then happens at that client location now kind of needs to be upgraded with every new connectivity that you want to bring to the table. So when you're talking about the ability to innovate quickly and connect the needs of the, those SMBs in real time, like cloud multi-tenant SaaS is really kind of the only way to do that right now. Absolutely, Matt, you you, you agree? Yeah. Couldn't agree more, both based on kind of the way Becky answered question one in this piece, easy is the name of the game, right? Um, consumer and business expectations have transformed, you know, over the last dozen years. And Amazon was one of the early drivers of that. We've seen Apple continue to kind of condition us as consumers. It needs to be easy. And I think small businesses, you know, many of them are focused on their practice and the headwinds and the macro environment that they're they're focused on. So software companies that show up that are cloud native, that are actually able to deliver um, multiple chunks of functionality. And, and we're going to see embedded finance and things that you never thought a software company would probably show up and do. We're going to see this evolution take hold over the next three to four years. And candidly, it can only be done one way. And that's, you know, f- through a cloud native um, architecture. 
So Matt, um, you know, we, we hear talk about embedded payments and, you know, we've got these other integrated payment models and things like that, but how would you um, differentiate what, what's different about embedded payments versus the way we used to build integrated payments into systems? Yeah. Thanks, Brett. Like that's such a layup question. So I was one of the original <laughs> authors. I was one of the original authors of the integrated payments model. Um, back in 2008 at Century Payments, we partnered with Radiant Systems now, NCR, one of the world's largest hospitality companies. Again, kind of going back to this cloud question and help them essentially build an integrated payments model. When it, in essence, Brett, all it was was a payment application with a different sales and service delivery model where it felt integrated to that end business. Where we've, where we've gone with an embedded payments is it's, it's much like that Uber experience, right? The two-sided experience from both payments and banking, both as a rider and driver. And we're going to see that proliferate throughout the experience, right? Where companies like WorldPay specifically, and this is one of my responsibilities, is embed our technology through these cloud-native companies to where, to the business, it feels like the software company is delivering the end-to-end experience and not just payment acceptance, but it could be business DDA, small business lending, inline consumer finance, you know, how does all that get packed up into one experience, helping that software company who, who's um, that mission critical software that's helping that small business operator or medium business operator run their business, um, create that seamless experience because, you know, much like um, payments companies, software companies are fighting to create differentiation at the point of sale um, because, again, expectations have changed of what should be delivered there. No, yeah, I, and I would think that sorry, the, the big difference there, no, sorry to jump in, but I think the big difference there between integrated and embedded, because integrated is like, I, I you know, click pay, right? And it leads me to a place where I make the payment, right? That's fine. That's integrated. Right, right. I think embedded, really what makes that magical is that it's in context, right? Like you, you mentioned Apple at the opening, right? Like every Friday afternoon, I go to a local brewery to work in the afternoon. So I hop in my car Friday at one o'clock, my phone goes, Hey, 10 minutes to the brewery, take Maple Street, it's open, right? Like, and I hop in there, and I go to pay, right? And I just do that from that same phone. And it pops up with the card that I choose, because it's in context, right? All of this stuff now happens within my normal workflow. And I didn't have to think about it, right? Like my maps popped up, my payment method popped up, all of those things happen. Like that embedded is where really kind of what makes that magical is in context. It's when the need is is present, we we got we beat you to that, right? Like we're presenting it right in the moment. You didn't have to think about it. No, I think that's the key. And you've both emphasized this lowering of friction, the requirement for lowering friction. So one of the areas where there's still a fair bit of friction in the US and in, in the UK, Europe, um, you know, is is you know, merchant onboarding. If you look at the advances we've made, you know, even in the US, Square really attacked that market, you know, here. But if you look at the success of the Chinese mobile payments models with their QR code, um, you know, being the basis of merchant onboarding, really, really simple um, onboarding process. And that led to massive um, network effect for their payments, uh, um, you know, systems there. So uh, in 2021, $76.8 trillion of mobile payments went through just two Chinese mobile payments company, Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay. It seems like merchant onboarding was the secret to unlock that, you know, what, what has now double all of the plastic card payments in the world. So, you know, 
talk talk about how um, you know that is changing the process of merchant onboarding, and you know why where we can expect you know less friction in that. Maybe Becky, you jump in first, and then we'll ask Matt. Yeah, the, the, it's funny. The first way we, I think, as an industry, we decided to try to solve this, and I think Stripe kind of led the way in this a lot of ways with to say, hey, let's just stage it, right? Like hey, with five pieces of information, right, you can be up and accepting payments. And what that ended up feeling like to a lot of customers is a bit of like pulling the rug out from under them later, right? I get up and running and then, you know, two, $3,000 into and, you know, square with, with Chase behind them as well, that same experience, right? Once I hit that like $2,000 mark, all of a sudden now you've frozen my payments and you want all of this additional information. So I think we've tried this concept of let's just not ask for all of that data up front. Let's do it later. And it makes it for a very disjointed experience for some of those merchants. But I, I think pointing back to that concept of software-led, I think vertically focused SaaS platforms know a whole lot more about their organizations and those potential merchants than we know and really can help us instead of like the standard, you know, 12 or 15 data points that we collect, what more could we know about this organization? Is there a license code, right? Like if it's a photography services, how many photos do they have up, right? Like do they do they have preferences or, or profiles elsewhere that we could pull in? So I think there's this dynamic nature of merchant evaluation that really could be fueled by what software platforms already know that we as payments experts do, do not know right because we aren't in those little niches yeah no becky you you said it really well i do think it it does come down to the software company and the model that they're running to becky's point so when square first took off they were powering a lot of what we'll call micro business right where it was a few transactions whereas you matriculate up to um software companies with a with a larger with a larger um monthly subscription fee that experience has got to be crisp and you hold that business's funds for a day or two and there's there's blowback and it's a lot bigger than payments they put the entire software relationship at risk so but i would share like here at worldpay we're powering multiple different underwriting models either internally or through partners today i have over 500 partners you can get a mid in 30 seconds like you can spin a client up in 30 seconds to get them provision to go but to becky's point the friction is going to be someplace in there right from a from a regulatory risk and governance perspective, someplace in there, you've got to know who you're funding. Um, it's either going to get done up front in the underwriting process or on the backside, where I do think there's big opportunity for the industry is exactly where Becky was going. That's how do you pull in that the, that demographic data and that geo data and the other metadata around that account to kind of help you better understand that business. One of the things that we've done here is most of our partners are, are, are very vertical in nature. So that that risk profile is pretty homogenous in the portfolio. So the, once you kind of understand customer number five, the rest of them right behind it look pretty similar, right? And that allows for that quicker pull through where a horizontal like square on any given day, they could be dealing with hundreds and hundreds of different risk profiles. So let's um, sort of think a, a bit in terms of where we're going with this, because, you know, we are, we, you know, there's a lot of talk about the metaverse right now. Um, but, you know, we've also got um, Apple's reality smart glasses and meta, you know, increasingly uh, working in this space as well, but you know, not only from a VR perspective, but augmented reality perspective. And you, we are going to start to see these payment scenarios that are really low friction, gesture-based, head-mounted display. Uh, you know, you walk into a coffee shop, you're all 
order is taken by the barista, you know, driven from your smart glasses and the payment is a gesture or, or something like that. So as we start talking about that, um, you know, is there... Um, more control that's given over to sort of the operating systems at the consumer end or at the SMB end, or or is this still about the plumbing? You know, and 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 like you know, do you know, my fear is that the 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 Apple wallets and the Google wallets and the you know the smart speakers they become the new gatekeepers of of payments experiences. But Matt, how do you think that's sort of all going to pan out over the next few years? Yeah, a couple of thoughts. One, it's so funny that the, these movies that we've watched over the last couple of decades all come true, right? I feel like what you're describing is uh, Tom Cruise in the Minority Report, right? Where he went in the gap and they were right, right. standing in his eyeball. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the reality, bro, is I think I think the innovators are going to drive them out, drive the market, and that's my business, right? I mean, we're out there finding the people that are going to unlock these new use cases, these new technologies, and power them. I think what we see as a macro trend, if you just think back over the last couple of decades, is more and more and more you're seeing the um, the technology move closer to the consumer, right? It's, even if you just use banking as an example, for many of us, I'll date myself, we all started out as a teller, then we moved to the ATM, then we went to a web-based online banking, then banking ended up on our phone, and now that phone's right at the point of sale, right? So I think we'll continue to see many of these technologies move closer to the consumer, and I think the businesses will be challenged to um, provide those experiences. And to, to us, it's the innovators in the market that are going to create those experiences. And that's what we do. We, we help power them, standing behind them, kind of where their knowledge drops off from a technology standpoint to bring into that, bring in the financial technology part where it actually connects to traditional banking and acquiring um, plumbing. Okay. Um, Becky, you know, what, where do you envisage this going? You know, as a consultant, I mean, obviously, it, you know, it's getting easier to, to enable businesses to do some innovative payments things, but, um, you know, uh, do you see like a whole new, um, evolution of e-commerce, m-commerce, glasses, commerce sort of coming, um, with these payments innovations? Yeah, you know, I think I think we'll continue to see that evolve. And and what's fascinating about it is on the front end, it feels like it's an entirely different concept, right? Like I'm gonna pay with my glasses. Like this is so very cool. And the reality behind the scenes, it ultimately ends up becoming a traditional transaction. And all of those cool technologies are about authentication, right? How do I approve this transaction? How do I initiate this transaction? At the end of the day, it's still gonna process on a standard rail. And so from the back and that kind of gives us a benefit and that we already know how to process these transactions. I think what that does, though, is it gives us a lot of fun ways to bring that back into context, right? At the point I'm thinking about a purchase, I can authorize this purchase. And it's about how we think about authorizing, like Matt's point about paying with my phone, right? Like I don't I don't pull out my plastic card anymore. I tap with my phone. And now what we see is I don't pull out my phone anymore, right? I blink or I wave in front of my glasses. And that still is just going to trigger on the back end as some sort of traditional payment method, right? Like you're still going to run a card or an ACH or something on the back end at the very end of the day. And so I think what that does though is, is the winners of that game are somebody who provides that in context for both the, the merchant and the buyer without kind of exposing all of this payment rail mess that happens behind the scenes where the the buyer really just feels like I just flipped my hand and something magical happened. And we've we've kind of hidden all of the mess of we have all this regulatory and multiple rails and you know payment put payment money movement on the back end. 
but you know, at the same time, shouldn't we be getting rid of all the mess at the back? You know, I mean, isn't that part <laughs> of the opportunity? Um, it but sure that, sounds like it, right? <laughs> well, you know, you'd think, um, but you know, it requ- that requires. Uh, I mean, we do have a lot of stickiness in those old rails, particularly in markets like the US and Europe. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whereas sort of like if you look at um, mobile wallet adoption offshore, you know, in in you know African markets and ASEAN markets and things like that, we're we're circumventing a lot of that now because there's sort of P to P, you know, and and real-time payments capability, you know, Fed now yeah. still coming next year. But, um, you know, like if you look, I remember living in Hong Kong in 99, having real-time payments available then, you know, and it's like, um, it, it's like some some of this infrastructure we're sort of trying to prop up and reduce friction on, you know, maybe we just need to like get some some new uh, new rails in there, but um, yeah, don't tell Visa or Mastercard you said that, but yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the issuing bank and the regulators are right there. They want their tax income and they like these yeah. traditional rails. They get the they get no, the I know. But even if you you know, like I know Mastercard and Visa are, are really worried about this right now. But um, you know, if if you look at a lot of these rails that are emerging, um, you know, the interchange model is clearly a threat. So, um, but there there are are other opportunities for revenue in terms of facilitating payments beyond interchange um you know the ones that are uh, most uh, have seen the biggest growth um particularly in the smb space uh, in places like china is merchant funding you know so yeah. getting access to credit you know as part of the payment rails or the wallet service um now matt um you know, you've got this uh, payment facilitation tech that you guys use at, at WorldPay, PayFac. Um, you know, and 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 is this at the core of this sort of glue that you're talking about, or tell me about the role of PayFac in this from a solution? Yeah, so the business I run, because um, I'll give my quick plug, is WorldPay for platforms. And what I would tell you, Brett, is we actually offer multiple different experiences for software companies to help their client. We let off with the integrated payments. Model that model is still very true, and it does help a number of um, software companies think about how to serve their client. We also own the other end, right? And that's actually where I met Becky years back is Payback, right? She was actually one of my clients. Um, and you know, we're we're the global, we're the U.S. domestic leader in this space with the most registrations with Visa, Mastercard. One of the things that we strategically did at the beginning of 2022 is we actually acquired a company called Payrix. Payrix effectively is an infrastructure as a service, a payments infrastructure as a service platform, which helps software companies that want to become a payfac, but can't jump right headfirst into the compliance risk stuff, some of the pieces we were touching on earlier. And and it's it's essentially a piece of software and a set of managed services that would help a cloud native software company go, how do I get more involved? How do I create these differentiated embedded experiences without having to make substantial investment or hire, you know, tens of dozens of people in, in a product organization like an FC, right? That one that wants to bring payments in-house. Right. We help small, medium, and large cap softwares kind of get into it. So the great news, Brett, is we have this whole continuum of product suite that regardless of where a software company is in their evolution or what, how they think about payments, we can help them both domestically and globally. Okay. Um, so, um, Becky, you know, when we talk about 
um, embedded payments, um, we'll often hear embedded finance term used, um, you know, sort of interchangeably with embedded payments. But really, embedded finance is is a lot um, a lot deeper opportunity. It, it's more about how we embed you know, financial services in customers' lives. But could you just articulate what, what, how do you see the difference between embedded payments and embedded finance? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I would say at a a high level, you know, embedded payments is an element of embedded finance, embedded finance being kind of the whole suite of financial services that an SMB or a software platform might need or want. And and what's funny is they they traditionally got all of these things from their bank, right? Even merchant services, which kind of that ancient term for accepting payments, right? Which we all figured out, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago really needed to be simpler. And that's where you saw that evolution of that payment facilitator model and organizations like the ones Matt runs. And what we're going to see is, is increasingly, again, back to, you know, it, it sounds like a broken record here, back to in context, these, you know, uh, as these SMBs want to buy all of their financial services that way in context. So they don't want to have to go to their bank. And you think about the role then. Just make it as easy platform. as possible, right? Yeah, yeah. Like when you think about think about what all you know about an organization if you're processing all of their payments, right? Like and what you could then use that data for, like to to do real-time capital lending, right? Hey, we saw that this customer that you do a lot of business for just placed this massive order. We trust you, we trust them. Here's some real-time capital to help you fulfill that order order. Now so you can deliver that in context. I mean, imagine being able to do lending, right? And of almost micro lending in context. And that would expand to, you know, DDAs, you know, expense management, right? All of those things now become come super embedded with the way the organization does their business instead of very divided today where I kind of these separate pockets of services. So that's how I would see that coming in and playing with the embedded payments system we have today. Well, I think buy now, pay later is a good example of that, right? Buy now, pay later is access to contextual credit that circumvents the use of a credit card, you know? And so now suddenly, you know, if I give you the ability to offer credit and I can shop around for different back-end credit for providers that could give you co- contextual credit at the time of purchase, uh-huh. you you are circumventing the need for a, a, a customer to use a credit card, but you're also you know, potentially deepening the relationship because now you have a credit relationship um, you know, tied to the service or the product. So it's um, you know, th- exactly. there's there's an obvious threat to the banks here as well, you know, because Pretty much anyone can now be a lender with sort of contextual credit. So um, maybe Matt, you know, how do you see um, embedded finance uh, broadly affecting banks from the ecosystem perspective? Yeah, I'm going to hit it two ways, Brett, real quick. One, you know, Becky described a use case, but think about all of us, right? If we were using a piece of cloud software to say run run a, um, a medical practice, that ability to never have to switch out of that software and be able to look into the checking account look into the GL and recon a transaction across the flows. 99% of the globe today has got to log into three to four pieces of software to track a particular transaction. This concept of embedded finance is not just um, offering these different products, but creating unbelievable experiences for the operators and the owners of these businesses through the software. So I think it's going to take off really quick. You know, I think the way it, 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 it'll, it'll, the, the impact on banks is actually it's going to help a lot of banks become increasingly relevant in a digital delivery age. At FIS, we have over 5,000 banks. We've got key software around core issuing, et cetera. So we're very well positioned um, 
to seize this opportunity because I don't need to bring in a stack of third party. We actually can expose a lot of this product um, natively right through our own product suite. And the reality is that equates to business value to the um, operator because they're not sourcing from 12 different vendors. For us, it's about actually grabbing some of our existing banking partners that are making investments in digital cores, digital issuing, et cetera, and inviting them to party. Because the reality why buy now, pay here later, and some of these merchant cash advance products have been around for decades. Traditional banking products are still winning. And for us, it's about bringing um, the right relevant banks to the party. We talked about regulatory, um, et cetera, bringing some of these parties up and going, hey, would you like access to new distribution through these digital platforms? We're seeing you know, er lots of hands raised. The question is, they're going to have to show up from an operating model and digital perspective to do it. So I think there's a place where banks and these technology companies can coexist. But in right in that note, and with one thought here, and that is, as you know, as we go through this recession that clearly we're in, I think um, durable balance sheets, durable technology is going to win. And we saw this in 2008, Stripe and Square's emergence coming out of the other side of that. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting times ahead. And I yeah. think there'll be some traditional players that win. And I think there'll be some new entrants that win. But I believe that vertical integration. Um, will be a structural advantage as, as this market trend unfolds. I, I have to say, Matt, that's a, that's a very US centric view because you know if you're in China, there's no way you'd be able to say that, right? You'd there's no way you'd be able to say that the incumbent banks are are, are going to come out on top because of this infrastructure. You know, that's that's the challenge. I, I didn't say, I didn't say all of them, Brad. I said some of them. Yeah, some well. of them evolved. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. All right, well, um, interesting conversation. Um, maybe Becky, I'll, I'll I'll give you the the final word. Take us out, you know, five ten years, and um, you know, what is the world of embedded payments going to look like? Fi finally, yeah, I think I think the winners here are ultimately in the word we've said a lot is context. Right, we talked about contextual credit. We talked about kind of payments in context. We've talked about. You know, glasses and other authentication methods. But I think regardless of where all of that goes, what we're all looking for is something that feels very natural in the order of what we're doing today. And so I think that the winners of embedded payments and embedded finance in general are the ones that are able to deliver those services in context. In the moment I need it, with all of the information they have to go ahead and pre-approve that, um, I think that that continues to take the lead and any sort of friction or, or the, the decision making process. I, I think those folks that that's what loses. Right. That, that that's where where we see we see the losses. I agree a lot. Like Becky, I think the the winners in this spread are going to be the ones that create really unique, compelling workflows and use cases for their for their company. And I think we'll see three giant TAMs that being banking payments, embedded finance and embedded sure tech, which is almost 11 trillion in TAM, I think the lines are going to get significantly blurred over the next yeah. three to five years. No, there's a huge opportunity to disrupt this space still, given what we've seen with the mobile wallet usage offshore and the, the slow adoption of mobile wallets and, and embedded stuff uh, here here in the US. Um, Becky, how can people find out more about Qualys and, and the work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Find me on LinkedIn is the easiest place. So Becky Coplin on LinkedIn, uh, Qualys Partners. Awesome. Um, and uh, just so just uh, to summarize, if you want some more information, go to www.fisglobal.com slash worldpay platforms um, for more information on WorldPay. That's www.fisglobal.com slash 
world pay platforms. That's it for uh, this segment. Um, stay tuned with us. We're going to have a quick break and we'll be right back after the break with some more uh, fintech goodness. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs, banking unbound. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. Uh, continuing our tradition of having uh, best-selling authors uh, on the show to uh, launch their new books. We have Diana Kando joining us today. She is a New York Times best-selling author. She's just got a new book out. It's called Go Big or Go Home, which I thought was an Australian expression, but maybe it's a maybe it's a global thing. But Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So, how do you go big or go home? So go bigger or go home is a mindset more than anything, which says that in today's hyper competitive, frequently changing environment, if you can't create a memorable experience for your customers, then you'll be instantly forgettable, regretfully mediocre, and you won't win the business as often as you should. Uh, Now, is this um, an epiphany that occurred to you you know, in your career in, in terms of differentiation or is it something that gradually you learned to do? No, this was like an epiphany moment that I had. This CEO who connected with me through a mutual friend called me up. I was like, I want to write a book about our company. They have this company that creates experiences for like sports teams and colleges. And I was like, okay, good for you. Like I took the call on my treadmill, walking my dog, like zero interested And he was like, well, why don't you come in and take a tour of our place? And I was like, fine. So I I walk in, he gives me a tour of this pretty cool, like 200,000 square foot facility. And then he stops and points to this giant thing. And he says, that's the world's biggest 3D printer. And I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. And he said, we used it to win, like building the biggest 3D object for the Las Vegas Raiders. And I was like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. He said, yeah, we have the moves in our company when we really want to close a deal, we call it the LTF. And uh, when we do the move, usually our typical close rate is 45%, but the LTF close rate is 90%. So of these harder to win pitches where they have sometimes no business pitching, they win 90% of them. And I was like, okay, now I want to know more. And as I became obsessed with the idea, I started interviewing their employees, their customers, and really understanding the science behind how it worked. I was like, this is a game-changing idea that now I have to tell everyone. And by the end of it, I was begging him to co-author the book together. He's the co-author on the book, Tucker Trotter. And so what does LTF stand for? <sighs> I, you know, we had a big debate about whether to call the book but it stands for land, the, and then F word. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Face um, land. Um, so it, it definitely does appear like a mindset uh, approach to this in terms of like a lot of this thinking. But you talk about the fact that 
um, you know, getting an emotional connection with a potential business partner, whether you're pitching business or whether you're selling something is really critical. Um, and, and, you know, and it would appear like because we're relying more and more on technology these days, you know, I get these cold calls, you know, spam robocalls, I get these spam emails, you know, um, and, you know, I don't know how they get any return on investment off those sort of mechanisms anymore. So it would seem to be, um, you know, a, a point of differentiation to be emotionally connected with someone and someone's brand. But how do you start that off? Is it involve a lot of planning? How do you get to know where the emotional connection is going to be most powerful? So a lot of us care about our clients and our business and what we do, but we have trouble showing it. Just like in our relationships, like sometimes you don't know the thing to do to show the person you love that you love them. And this book provides this scientifically backed framework for specific things you can do to pique their emotions and really feel like they're connecting with you at a very fast pace. So I can kind of go over the framework and then I thought it would be fun if we talked about how this applies in the banking space, what you sure. see banks do. Yeah, we can do that. Okay, yeah, cool. No problem. The first tool is that you add an element of surprise. So typically, you know, your listeners are very savvy people who've read a lot of books and they know that our brain loves to be an autopilot, like conserve energy as much as possible. And so when we experience things in the world, we usually forget them almost instantaneously after they occur. But if you can add surprise, it's like a reset to the brain. You know, it makes you pay attention, be curious about what's going on. So the best ways to add an element of surprise is to do something, you know, unexpected. <laughs> That's so funny that you expected me to say the word unexpected. <laughs> so I, I was thinking about... I, I will tell you, I had a friend who worked at a bank and she really wanted me to be a customer. And she kept asking. And I was like, no, I got my routing number memorized. And she's like, what can I do? And I was like, I need a full body track suit. And I was, she was like, what? And I was like, well, if I'm going to change banks, I want to advertise it to everybody. I need, at the time it was called MoBank. I need a MoBank full body thing. And she was like, got it. So she sent me a package at work, full, full track suit that fit me perfect. And like, like that, like, how can we create an element of surprise, something that is out of the ordinary that makes people be like, this is different. These people are different. Yeah. I think that, you know, there has been evidence of this emerging more and more in banking over the last few years, because, um, you know, if you look at the challenger banks around the world, um, you know, they're, they're amongst the fastest growing banking institutions globally today because they can acquire customers at, at digital scale very, very cost-effectively. But also, if you look at many of the new design features that have become recent standards, particularly on in the mobile app world, they've been pioneered by these new players. So they have been looking for that differentiation in experience, and particularly in markets like the UK, where you have a bunch of challenger banks this has now shifted expectations of the traditional players in those markets, you know, based on the better customer experiences that have been created by these uh, emergent players. And so I think there's, you know, strong evidence to suggest that you can move the needle through customer experience in that way, which, 
in conventional wisdom in the banking sector, you know, banks would have thought that their banking charter was what made them special. And that's no longer the case. And certainly it's not their branch locations, right? Because most of us don't use branches anymore. No, I think it's important to map out the customer experience like a movie, like there's different scenes. And then think about the different pivotal scenes and how you can add these elements to each one. For instance, as a banking customer, I expect when I open a new account, they're going to give me a pile of paperwork and tell me to fill it out and come back. But how surprising would it be if they were like, what's your company name? Okay, you're a client. And you were like, what? (laughs) Yeah, it's all set up. Here's your information. You know, that took a few minutes. It's possible today. It's just that none of us think about how to add those elements. Absolutely. Uh, So you talk also about magic moments. Um, You know, those magic moments, I assume, are more relationship building, um, you know, in terms of developing rapport with customers. But, uh, you know, increasingly because we have less physical contact with people. I mean, it's fine if you're walking into a bank and you're meeting with someone, you know, with a customer, but increasingly we are relying on digital engagement. So how do you create that sort of emotional connection digitally? So a lot of banks have, I think, high level relationships that they can apply these tools to. I do think this works better in a one-on-one setting. I think it can be applied digitally. It's just a for the research of the book, we focused on a B2B setting, right? So I, I think you can still create magic moments and there's lots of uh, sites that prove otherwise, including a lot of the competitors that you study that are overseas. Yeah, absolutely. So when, um, you know, uh, uh, how, how did you get into the whole writing space yourself in terms of, you know, what was your story arc in terms of becoming an author and, um, you know, getting on the New York Times bestseller list? Explain that journey for you personally. Sure. Uh, I was an entrepreneur, started a number of different businesses. Uh, one, some of them did really well. Some of them did really poorly. One in particular did exceptionally poorly. So it w- was a rocket ship ride to the top and bottom. And while things were going poorly, I started journaling about what was happening. And that journal eventually became my first book. And since then, it's about a decade ago, I've become a person who tries to find these fascinating ideas out in the world and share them with as many people as I can, oftentimes in the business setting. So to me, this framework, this magic framework, that's the five tools kind of spell the word magic. It provides a completely different way of thinking about how you approach customers, how you think about differentiation, um, and and the things that are available to you. For instance, one of the tools is to add 3D objects somewhere in your experience. So, what does that mean? So, yeah, something that is. What that? What does that mean? <laughs> um, it's different. So we're on video now. It, it's just different when you hold something in your hand or even when they see you hold right. something oh, in your yeah. hand. Yeah. And when you're in banking, you're selling invisible ideas. So how can we bring that out of the like brain only world into something that they can uh, see or feel to represent the idea? So for instance, you can have a three-dimensional object of what your fees are at your bank 
It's like a very small jar of money versus the competitor's banks. They they charge you fees if, for this and this and this. And so an average person pays a lot more. But if you can physically represent that to somebody, the idea will be more memorable in their minds. And you know, when you start thinking about sort of the emotions of connection and, and so forth, um, you know, how do you turn, like, I think it's, there are gimmicks you can use to initially grab someone's attention, but how do you develop a culture of consistently doing that? Because if you're consistently surprising people, yeah. that, must buy, that must mean that, you know, you're innovating at, a, at a, quite a steep rate, you know, and that's something that traditionally banks have, have quite some difficulty with. Well, I think it's about constantly challenging ourselves. I posted an article on LinkedIn uh, just yesterday about how a bank had hired a Ritz-Carlton customer service um, like trainer to teach their internal folks on how to interact with their high net worth customers because they understand that just looking at their own best practices or even competitors' best practices isn't going to differentiate them. So I think there's a lot of opportunity, like so much opportunity for us to create these special moments. It's just where do we go to look for the inspiration and how do we hold ourselves accountable to keep doing it and to not rest on our laurels? You know, every dollar you make is a reason not to change anything. So how can you decide to change something and and go big so that you can benefit for the next decade? And how, you know, um, tell me about your writing process. You know, I, sure. you know, I mean, obviously we've had a few different authors on the show. Um, you know, Kevin J. Anderson, who's done like, I don't know, 70 New York Times bestsellers, so envious. Um, you know, Kevin um, d goes on these hikes and dictates his books into <laughs> a, uh, a dictaphone thing and then someone transcribes it, which I think is just incredible. Yeah, I would. Particularly because he's doing sci-fi narrative stuff yeah. instead of like, I can imagine writing a business book potentially like that, but anyway. Yeah. Um, and then I personally, I only write in coffee shops, um, you know, so I had great difficulty writing during the pandemic because of lockdowns. Um, as soon as lockdowns were over, yeah, I actually traveled from New York to Thailand because Thailand, we have a residence there and Thailand came out of lockdown sooner. And so that enabled me to get back in the coffee shops and finish off my book. You know, I was just in South Africa last week and I was writing there in a coffee shop, great coffee shop in Cape Town. So that's my, my process is, you know, I need the Wi-Fi and the, you know, the white noise, um, yeah. you know, of, of the coffee shop around me. What's your process for writing? I think the best way to sum it up is I write a whole bunch and then cut away the vast majority of it. So this book takes an hour and a half to read. It's like 20,000 words, but we easily wrote 50, 60,000 words and then just cut away everything that wasn't amazing. So right. uh, there's a lot on the cutting room floor that includes amazing stories that just, you know, didn't quite fit or weren't good enough for the book. And so I'm uh, as proud of the cutting room floor as I am of what made it into the So book. do you use a you use an editor that you've worked with before or is it um Yeah. Um, okay. I think the more people you and, can get involved in the project, the better it will be. And tell me a bit more about Tucker and and why you chose to write the book with Tucker. Begged to write the book 
with okay. Becker. I mean, he is the source material. So it's his philosophy that kicked everything off and his business practices. He just didn't know why it worked. He just knew what they were doing. And I was able to provide the science behind it, as well as find the additional stories of other organizations that were creating this kind of magic with their customers. And so what was that magic source? You know, that... uh... Yeah, it, it's creating, turning your sales process and thinking about it like an experience. So think about how you interact with your customers like scenes of a movie. Or if you ever watch uh, political debates, you know, they have at the bottom those like emotional responses from the audience, the little ticker that goes up and down. So think about your customer process with those little emotional tickers and think about the highs and lows. And unfortunately, for most of us, it's just a straight line, which means, you know, no heartbeat, <laughs> no, no peaks. And when he started thinking about how to create these magic moments, it changed everything. And I will tell you, it changed everything for my business, which is keynote speaking. How I interact with prospects now is completely different, and I'm closing a much higher percentage of deals. I'm having a lot more fun, and I think I'm building relationships much faster than I ever have. I mean, you're you're a super energetic speaker. I think that comes across. You know, um, that energy is contagious for audiences. Um, you know, it's an important uh, tool set to develop as a speaker, um, but. You know, you d- did you start off as a speaker like that, or is this something you've learned? No, you get better. You get better at everything. But I will tell you that a lot of speakers, and I think a lot of banks, this is how we we connect, feel like their website doesn't fully represent how awesome they are. You know, doesn't communicate the, all of that emotion and caring that they have for their community and their customers. And I think if you shift your thinking from, you know, how do we create features and benefits for them to the process of how we interact with them and how we can add a little bit of emotion to it, it completely changes the relationship. Now, you know, um, in terms of sort of your core branding, in fact, looking at your website, you call yourself an innovation nerd. Yes. But you say that, yeah, but you also say that growth starts with curiosity yeah, uh, it would appear to me that those two are qu- quite closely related. That to be good at innovation, you have to be curious. So, um, you know, what what are you researching in the world that helps you keep that edge in terms of innovation? Obviously, you spent time um, with uh, you know, Tucker and his team and yeah. and uh, embedded there to do that. But you know, you know, how are you how do you keep your energy levels up? How do you keep excited? Well, you know, the opposite, Brett, of curiosity is certainty. And when you have certainty in your life and in your world, then you don't need to look up any other answers. And when you can be open to new ideas, new experiences, I could like had zero interest in writing that book. But when I was invited on a tour of Tucker's company, I was like, "Ma, right, I'll go. I'll say this could be interesting. And I think the more we spend being open to new experiences, new ideas, going to conferences in, in different industries, which could provide value to ours. I think we're going to get those ideas. It's just that we're so sure we show up to work with a to-do list. And like, that's all we need in our life is just checking things off the to-do list. And that doesn't leave any space or room for curiosity. So 
Um, I, I almost like try to force it in my life. So one way I have forced curiosity is I'll take my best bit from a speech and then I'll forbid myself to use it for like four to six months. And I'll say, okay, you got to come up with something else. And sometimes that something else ends up being even better. Sometimes it's a train wreck, you know, like <laughs> that's what happens when you try. Well, it's a learning process, right? Yeah. But that's how you get to keep evolving as opposed to being like, hey, remember that cool thing we did 10 years ago? Which is what happens at a lot of organizations. Right. You know, when you ask and they for trade their... off that for a long time, right? Yeah. So like, but it loses effectiveness over time. Right. And it's scary writing a book called Go Big or Go Home because the bar is set pretty high. Right. You have to go big or go home. <laughs> but that's, that's what I'm talking about, creating accountability for yourself, is to say, no, I will decide that that is the bar that I want to be responsible for as a person, as an organization. And that that kind of, I don't know, commitment is felt by your customers. Uh, you know, tell me about the, uh, the 3D printer technology they were using and why this was such a focal point. Because I know you have also referenced this in your public speaking. You tell a story about this as well. Yeah, well, you know, it's about thinking about how to do, like surprising your customers. It's about thinking about how to do ordinary things in non-ordinary ways. So when the Las Vegas Raiders were looking for this torch that they wanted built for their new stadium, it's this nine-story torch. I mean, this thing is huge. DI said, I think we could 3D print it. And so Nobody it was a metal had... printer or because it, it was it a metal put printer? So it's because like carbon it, fiber. Oh, carbon fiber. Okay. Because yeah. I'm just thinking if it's a torch, it, <laughs> you don't want it to burn. Not a, it's, not a, it's not an actual torch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's the casing or the display of the torch. That's right. And so, but that's a great metaphor for us of how we can do ordinary things in non-ordinary ways. So for instance... When we're interacting with our customers, the easiest thing to do is to send an email. The more interesting thing to do would be to send a video or just something that is out of the ordinary. My favorite examples are people who apply for jobs that put their resume on food items like a cake that they send to a person's office or cupcakes or as the wrapper of a chocolate bar. So surprise means think about the ordinary things that we do every day, but how can we do them in non-ordinary ways? And that non-ordinary delivery really makes it stand out. Um, in, in terms of your personal journey, your arc in this, you know, um, who has surprised you in the past? You mentioned the bank uh, example. Someone wanted to, you to join their bank and send you a yeah. tax suit. You know, um, you know but... Um, is there something that these people share in common in terms of capability? I know, obviously, you can learn this skill, but for people, uh, you know, like your co-author and others that you've met and interacted with, what is it that has made them surprising? So I just think that as you're experiencing the world every day, you should keep a list of any time you, you encounter something and you're like, oh, that's clever. And I, I keep a list. Actually, this morning, I saw an author send out a mass email. And at the bottom, it says, please 
respond and tell me what you do. I promise I read each one of these. This is my personal email. I check it every day. And I was like, oh, that makes me feel like she actually cares. I will use that. I will copy that, (laughs) you know? And so when I was sending out books for people to review, I got an email back with a video and it started with like a musical number of somebody's response to me. So these are things that don't have to, you don't have to buy the world's biggest 3D printer to create surprise. You just have to spend a couple extra seconds thinking about what is a little bit of a different way for me to deliver this kind of content to to my customers. And, and I think that we've been doing it the same way for so long in banking that the amount of opportunity is, you know, huge. Yeah. No, I, I think we're going through a massive change right now in terms of modality of banking and so forth. Most bankers don't realize that mobile wallets have now surpassed plastic cards, as an example, um, for day-to-day banking use. And so a lot of that innovation is occurring right before our eyes, and yet most banks are still doing the same things day in and day out. You know, years ago, it's, it's 10 years ago now, in 2013, I was invited to the board of J.P. Morgan Chase and to present to them on, uh, um, at the time, it was my book, Bank 3.0. Um, and, um, you know, it was a 30-minute conversation or a 30-minute presentation and a bit of Q&A at the boardroom. And, you know, you're sitting around the board and you've got people like Jamie Dimon and so forth there. You know, this is in, in New York City, you know, at their headquarters. Um, and, uh, it, it's hard to surprise them, but I did manage to surprise them. I'll tell you what, uh, yeah. we did. so, um, you know, I, I, I was spending this time and I was obviously talking about digital as surpassing, um, you know, branch and you're going to have to be of the mindset that every product you sell has to be sold outside of the branch, um, you know, executing digitally. And of course, um, I can't remember his name now, Tony, um, the head of retail was like, but our branches are massively profitable. And I said, well, A, I think that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you force customers into the branch. Like you can't sign a mortgage up online on at the time at chase.com. You have to come into a branch for a mortgage. Um, but, you know, uh, even, even let's argue that that was the case, that branches were profitable. You're misaligned with, you know, your emerging customer set. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well... Think of a millennial or let's take a Gen Z, right? What's the first thing when they, if they happen to walk into a branch, which is I think increasingly unlikely, but let's say they walk into a branch, what's the first thing you're going to try and sell them? You know, there's a few little books around the table and the head of retail says, well, checking account, of course. And I said, why? They're never going to write a check in their life. And you could see the penny drop, right? (laughs) Is that you're selling the primary product you're selling. And- you know, to your customers who are digital natives who are never going to write a physical check and put in the mail and send it to someone because that's not the way they think, the primary product you're selling them is a checkbook. How does that make any sense? Why did you call it a mobile bank account? And you, I could see you looking around the room, they had never had that conversation. And they'd never had that conversation because they were thinking that people need a checking account. Right, because that's what everyone's always needed, you know, yeah. for the last fifty years. Um, so I, you know, there, there are, and and the number of banks today that still only sell checking accounts for opening your bank account 
um, you know, versus what we see, you know, with Alipay and WeChat Pay and, you know, Apple Pay, you know, at least with Apple, they have the cool titanium card, which they didn't even want to do a card. They just wanted to use the phone. But, um, you know, this is the functional ecosystem in the States. You know, you, you, but, you know, you look at these mobile wallet plays and they sell you on convenience. You, you look at Revolut's success in Central Europe and Eastern Europe, much of it's been because they uh, offer crypto custody, the ability to buy and sell uh, crypto, you know, which you just, there was just no services in those markets for. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that that ability to sort of change where you fit in a customer's life in terms of your relevance is important but doesn't that presume that you really know your customers well you know i think a lot of banks that are learning this over the last two or three years now but the radio shack is really the lesson of this where we thought that retail locations were the moat that protected our business and it ended up being the thing that sank that business you know and so sometimes that's why you have to stay curious. Sometimes your biggest strength can turn into your weakness. And if you don't keep in touch with your customers and their ever-changing preferences, then uh, you'll be in big trouble. And I think the important thing to remember is that our customers' preferences are not set by us or even our banking competitors, but by every other experience that they have in the world. Amazon sets our customers' preferences. Right. And uh, that bar is much higher. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, uh, I, I, yeah, I see the book's done very well. It's been in the bestsellers uh, ranking across all the categories. You've got it in. It's in the top 10 for each of those right now, which is always a great achievement. Selecting those categories on Amazon is, <laughs> is really important as an author, actually. So go big or go home, five ways to create a customer experience that will close the deal from uh, Diana Kander and Tucker Trotter. Um, where can people find out more information about you and about your, uh, your books? Dianacander.com. Easy peasy. Fantastic. And of course you're on LinkedIn and Twitter yes. and so forth. What's your uh, Twitter handle? Everything is Diana Kander and LinkedIn is really You've got where one I... of those good names. You do yeah. Get <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, thank Diana, so thank you very much for coming on Breaking Banks. Uh, we'll, we'll check it out. Go big or go home. And uh, um, we appreciate we appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for the conversation. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.